we're joined by Jamie Coots. And uh, first of all, thank you very much for taking some time out of your schedule to have this conversation around crisis leadership and the lessons that we've learned and you've learned in emergency services and helping people apply that to their corporate lives. Jamie, can you give the, the viewers maybe just a, a quick rundown of, of who is Jamie Coots? Oh, wow. <laughs> Nothing quick about that. Um, yeah. I think a long time firefighter. Moved all the way up to fire chief. Now in the private world. 28 years in the fire world and, and about six months so far in the private world and slam right into this pandemic in that role. So it's been uh, interesting. I think when we when I think of myself, anyways, I think of the, the fireside and being in a private industry during something like this has been a new experience for me. I think back to the H1N1 and you're the fire. Back then, it might have been the deputy fire chief and all of that. And in 2011, when uh, wildfire burnt the town down, we were at the helm. I'd only been on fire chief for a few months then, and we were trying to learn from that and everything that happened since then. Just everything as train wreck uh, right in the middle of town and Fort Mac in 2016 and uh, high level 2019. I, I think more of myself as the fireside. So it's been really different to be part of a private business during this. So let's, uh, you referred to the fire in 2011 and just for obviously Jamie and I are really good friends and we'll try not to swear throughout this entire interview. <laughs> but oh, well. <laughs> fair enough. Um, can you, can you explain a little bit more around the 2011 event that obviously changed the complexity or complexion of Slave Lake and the Jamie Coots trajectory for sure? So can you, can you help folks understand what happened there? Yeah, I think that in 2011, I'd been a fire chief for maybe about a year, moving up to that, that May in 2011. And a couple fires started around town and a couple more and a couple more. Before we knew it, there was nine fires in the district that uh, were running communities out. And so ours was one of those. And so we evacuated from one area into town and then had to evacuate town out, get everybody out. And uh, the fire slammed right into town. And for me, I think at, at that point, our fire department, uh, it's a bit of an island. We're 125 kilometers away from the closest fire department, 160 kilometers away from the next one. And it's, we're just kind of doing our thing. It's a regional fire service and we're kind of doing our own thing. We had a plan. If wildfire comes a knocking, which it did many times, we'd hit all the hydrants and spray water out into the bush and it would stop. Now, when you look back at that, you think, what a ridiculous plan. I can't believe that that was the plan that held for. 49 years but uh, it was and we tried it and the uh, fire blew right over top of us and into the town from there it was i mean we were rocking plan a to z all day long for about through two weeks for sure anyways so what was the first the first let's call it first few hours of when that happened so obviously you go out of town and you're checking report of smoke you've got your son with you and then that goes from zero to five trillion in probably even an hour, right? Uh, yeah, even less. So what's going 
through your mind at that time from a leadership perspective? Because you've got Ryan out there, you've got a fire department, you've got this multiple wildfires going on. Like, like what's going through your head for the first couple hours? I think leading up to it, it was just another disaster. And I hate to say it like that, but I live in an area that's disaster prone. It's floods, it's fires, you know, it's stuff all the time. And it, it's relentless. I know it, I live in a place where you plan to have an emergency preparedness drill every year, but you almost don't have to because it happens in real time. And so I think this was at the start, just another, this was another wildfire coming and we're used to this and, and we have hundreds of these fires start in the districts. I was just watch it, see what's happening and kind of go from there. Then as it progressed, we were, we had people in one area and then another fire started on the opposite end of town. Of course, how it always goes. And we send people out there and it's back and forth. I, I would say that the, first, well, from three 30 to four 30, it was, a lot of planning and I remember being at a briefing at the emergency operations center saying if nothing else changes and I always start with that at every briefing I've ever done in my entire life and I still do that to this day because we can only be responsible for what we know better said you don't know what you don't know and that's just how it is and so I always start those briefings with if nothing else changes this is what I know right now and so I remember being in there and saying that. And while I was in there, the wind went from about 60 kilometers an hour to 120 kilometers an hour. And while I'm in there saying that, everything's changing. And so then, because a lot of people have trouble navigating that change in tempo. And I think crisis is characterized by this slow simmering and then this exponential jump. So do you remember, like, how are you, was there a moment or multiple moments where you thought, okay, this is not like what we thought. We weren't planning for this or we're not in Kansas anymore. Cause I think a lot of leadership, you have that moment, right? It's like, shoot, this isn't, isn't yeah. what I was expecting. Do you remember what, when that happened or, or how that transpired? For, for the Slave Lake fire, I remember exactly. I was standing on 12th street Southeast. I'd, gone to the corner with one of the firefighters and I looked down the street and I was calling in another truck and there was another house on fire and I said hey Ronnie there's another house and he bent down and he looks down the street and he says oh don't worry about that one and, and I grabbed him and I was like what are you, what are you talking about man like and he's like oh that's a that's my rental house and those guys moved out yesterday so there's nobody in there. and then he just walked away and grabbed the hose and started and and I stood on the corner and went what just happened here and, and I remember, and I don't know why I did this, but I counted 35 houses on fire on my corner. I'm standing there and I can see 35 house fires. And that was like, really, it hit me right there that nothing will be the same again. Everything that we know, we don't know now. And I think at that time we had around 60 firefighters. They're spread out all over the place. I'm just working on a truck. And it was like, you know what? We got to get a handle on this. We can't uh, just be running around doing our best. We got to figure out what to do next. And, and so then for me, a lot of times, every emergency I've ever been to, there's an immediate or not an immediate, there's a very acute sense of overwhelm, no matter what that be, might be like a tornado response, Katrina, whatever. And so would it be safe to say that was 
your your like oh my like your oh shoot moment yeah i think from there like i would say that the next hour was just like that dispatch called and said i think we're gonna lose power soon we got 35 more calls do you want us to tell you what they are 35 calls in the queue and i'm like no i think i got it i call him my good buddy from forestry and i'm giving him a hard time about bombers and helicopters and he's like, yeah you know what if we put those up they're gonna crash and i'm like yeah i didn't think of that it's too windy and uh, he says to me good luck and i said yeah you too man and so like all these little things just start to turn into this unbelievable hour of things that when you look back now each one of those should have scared me into statue mode i should have just shut down completely but really what happened instead was every time one of those things added on we just went harder and faster and really by the end of that hour i would say the decisions were coming so fast that i was barely able to realize that i was making those decisions and you just had to your brain just took over your training just took over and you just start to do this would it be safe to say at that point you weren't feeling stress in the traditional sense but looking back at it did stress play a major role over the first couple hours or is that something that you felt a little bit after that i i would say that i was feeling some stress leading up to it once I got to that 35 house realization that it was different than everything we'd ever done before and that this wasn't in any book. So there, there was nothing that I could have done or read or saw before that could help me out specifically for what we were doing at that time. And really, I feel that it probably got less stressful. We maybe kicked more into survival mode where your brain's going faster than you can even comprehend and you're just letting it roll and the worse it got we kind of had a saying like you know what else could go wrong and but 35 houses were on fire 100 houses were on fire 200 houses 300 houses it's this part of town that part of town it's jumping quadrants and at some point it's just like okay th this is beyond anything that we've ever seen before so let's just take a step back and start to make decisions that are good for the firefighters good for the people in town good for that so it goes back to that safety and it's uh, i didn't really have to do it my mind just did it and said we'll go back to some training so number one take care of everyone's safety number two make sure that everyone's evacuated. Number three, start putting out some fires. It, it was just your mind, thankfully, remembers a lot of the stuff that you see and hear and read and really just kick that in high gear. So when you talk to your firefighters, because you're doing a dual role, right? Like you're doing fire chief, but you're also engaged in the field too. So you've got that going on. But when you talk to the, the crews, how did they end up making decisions without you, essentially? Because under crisis, and, and we'll talk about it, you, there's a requirement to create like a decentralized command where you're pushing the decisions out into the field because there's just no time and there's no real rule book. So how did your crews start making decisions? Like they didn't look to you to say, hey, chief, should we go do this? What were they thinking? What were they doing during all of this? Yeah, 
I think that each fire truck had its own crew and each crew was kind of its own little incident command. They were operating in different parts of the town that they'd been sent to from the start. And it was hit a hydrant, grab some hoses, start putting out houses. And then it kind of turned into pull back to a safe place, grab some hoses, try and put out streets, pull back to find some places where we can defend what's going on and let the rest burn for a while. And then progresses all the way to, okay, more, more help's coming and lots of it. So what are we going to do between now and then when they come? Some critical times I can remember on the radio, I got on the radio and I just told everyone, if you have to leave the line to get your family out, to, to do something, to calm your wife down, to help your kids, whatever you have to do, then leave the line. There's no shame in that. If you can come back, try and come back. But if you got to go, you got to go. I, I deal with volunteer firefighters and they don't have to stay and help. So we wanted to know that it was okay if they had to go help their families. There was another time where I was a couple guys on our crew. I walked over to the truck and they're just screaming at each other, top of their lungs screaming at each other. And it was one of those, hey, hey, you guys, what are you doing? We're all we got. And so stop it. There's screaming's not going to help. Crying's not going to help. Like we got each other and that's all we got. We had a little crew of four. And from there, it's these two weird looks. And then it's the, I love you, man. The hugging and the, so it was really weird communication. Everything, I, I don't really remember the sound specifically, but 35 houses on fire makes a lot of racket. And so everything was at the top of your voice. So you're yelling everything and you're trying to hear stuff that you can't hear. And so communication, I would say in those first few hours was, it was really every truck do the best you can where you are. And that was really the last command that was ever given to them. Until later on, three, four hours later, we started sectoring and kind of got our incident command going again. And it kind of has to happen that way, sadly, is your officers and your top firefighters got to take over where they are. And then you get a big plan and then you got to still get that out to the field. So you have that timeline, that lag where the good plan takes some time to get out to the field to everybody that's out there. So if we were to, to compare this to... Well, right now we're going through COVID, but this could be any crisis. One of the dangers, I th or one of the things I see is the reluctance to push decisions out into the field. And now we're starting to see a remote workforce, and that's causing angst in itself in terms of, wait a second, I can't just call them into a boardroom and manage them anymore. They're sitting at home with dress shirt and sweatpants now because they're working remotely so similarly to what what you had so what i heard you say is basically you, you give them an overall command and then you're hoping or not hoping you're expecting them to carry it out based on what their training rule like standard operating guidelines or what does that look like for sure it depends on the job but if you sent them home to work remotely you expect them to continue doing their job what, whatever that job is. And I think that some people end up sitting around going, geez, I don't know what to do. I would go ask the boss if I couldn't think of the next thing to do. The next person is a go-getter and they're doing all kinds of stuff. They're firing off emails and they're on the phone and 
next thing you know, they're using all these different tools that are available to have meetings, whether they're in person like we're doing right now or just on the phone, uh, conferencing people in. And so it's really different and it's person to person. This is really hard on people that need to be told every step of the way what to do. This is really hard on managers that like to tell everybody what to do every step of the way. Mm -hmm. Depending on who you are, if you don't need much direction and you've got a job that you can do from home, you're flying, you're going at it, you're doing great. The next person needs a lot of direction. They're not crushing it as well as that person. And I know, I see it on all kinds of social media every day that every different kind of leader leads a different way. And the ones that need a lot of contact and tell everybody what to do every second of every day, they're not loving this, right? Their, their leadership style is not conducive to having 16 different remote work sites and trying to go with maybe some of their staff doesn't even know how to run a computer or call in on the conference line or do any of those things. So knowing what you know about leadership and, and the experience that you have, what would you tell, what would you tell managers or leaders that do have remote workers? Because to your point, you, you've got high performers and you have low performers. If they were a high performer in the office, I would suggest they're probably going to be a high performer at home. If they were a low performer in the office, probably I'm not an expert, but I got to think they're going to be a low performer at home too. So like, how would you deal with that? Because again, in emergency services, it's a mis misconception that it's all centralized, right? Like you've got one person making all the decisions, but an effective response, whether it be 2011 or anything, requires pushing that decision-making down. So what kind of advice would you give to, to the frontline manager that this is new territory? A couple of things. I would definitely say make some decisions. Don't wait and wait for things to happen because every single person that's remotely waiting for you to give some direction. And so there's a lot of fear and worry in the world right now. And if you're not giving them any jobs or any information, then they're just worried. They're sitting around, they're worried. I'm not talking about busy work, but if there's things that people can do, get it out to them so that they can do it. Secondly, I would say is, Think about what you really need to get done, right? So depending on the type of business that you have or that you run, is there deadlines that you still need to meet? Those deadlines matter in two weeks, three weeks, a month. Will they matter in two days? This thing is flying and we don't know what's happening. The government's changing the rules every day as they learn new things. To me, I like what's happening because there's decisions are being made. Good, bad, indifferent decisions are being made and, and we're getting them and, and we're reacting to those. And um, so what guidance would you have around decision-making? And the reason I ask that is because there's a tendency in something like this to suffer from analysis paralysis. And, and I get the fact that you need to make decisions and you need to make good ones. But in emergency management, you almost become comfortable making a decision without all the information. And at least for me, when I have all the information, it's a red flag. Cause to me, I'm like, hold on. If I think I know everything, then I am completely detached or unaware of something big that I don't know. So how do you, 
But do you have any rules of thumb or anything with regard to making decisions? Yeah, I think that look at the decisions that have to get made. Like I said, start at yes and work to no if you have to, instead mm -hmm. of always okay. starting at no. Let's unpack that. What, what do you mean okay. by that? I, I think that there's a tendency in the world in general, and especially right now when it's a big emergency and everybody's panicking, to say no to everything. What if all these companies that are retooling their plants to build face shields and, and face masks would have just said no? But everybody go home. We, we can't help, so everybody go home. My favorite is the company that switched from making hockey equipment to making plastic face shields. That's somebody that said, yes, we can do something. I don't know what, but we can do something, right? So if you start at no, you put up a roadblock immediately that you are going to do nothing that you're not gonna change, that you can't do something. If you start at yes, I'm not saying that every time you have to say yes and you have to make it work out because it just won't work that way. But if you start at yes and work to no, you'll have a lot more success and you'll probably be a lot more helpful and your people will probably be a lot happier to be with you than if you start at no every single time. And so from a leadership perspective, how can you ensure that your team starts with yes? and I suppose the first part would be outlaying that as an expectation. But then from a leadership perspective, how do you continue to, to make that happen? Because I think people, when they're scared, say no. And so unpack that a little bit from your experience. How, how do you, it's easy to say yes, but you're the leader. How, how do you make that happen? For me, it's hard in a pandemic because um, it, it's a, a thing that you have to build your team into, right? Your team has to understand that you have an expectation that we're going to try and figure it out, that we're going to say yes, that we're going to, I'll, I'll take it to something I know. We'd get a lot of calls all the time to say, can we come to the fire hall? We want a tour of the fire hall. And I would always say, yes, like the public is our bosses. If they want to come see this place, somebody figure it out, somebody find a way. And so now during this pandemic, can you have people come visit the fire hall? No, you can't. It's not safe. It's not allowed. So there's a lot of great fire departments out there that are just having a tour of the fire hall. on, And that's saying yes and, and meaning it, right? So while we want a tour, yes, we'll figure it out for you. It might not be the traditional way. It might not be the way that you thought of it, but we'll find a way to make it work. If we just say no during the pandemic, we're isolated. You can't come. It's over. I don't want to talk about it. That's starting at no. If you start at yes, there's ways to figure it out. There's ways to, what if all the health workers just said, no, we can't do this. Right. We're, not, we're not coming. The whole thing shuts down. And, and as a leader, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, but you have to recognize that when you say yes first, the, the how may not end up being perfect or how you might lay it down. Do you think that has, has something to, for, is that something for leaders to respect as well? It's going to happen and it may not be perfect, but it's going to happen. What are your thoughts on that? During this, just think of all the people that the no people that started at no, I can't run this company from home. You, that person can't work from home. That person can't do this. And, and then here we are. There's hundreds of thousands of people working from home. They're making it work. They're figuring it out. They're trying to, right? It's like the first group of people that had to lay people off. That's sad. Nobody wants to do that. That means it's going to hurt your business and it's your team. You don't want to let your team down. And 
but then it's happening hundreds of thousands of times. Then it's happening millions of times. And it's not you and it's not your fault and you didn't do it, but you have to, as a leader, grasp that and say, okay, how, how can I keep some things going? How can I keep some people working? If I have to let them all go, when I bring them back, how does that look? What's going to happen? And so leadership is, uh, it's really dependent on what you're doing and what your company's had to do to survive all this. But it doesn't just stop because everybody's gone. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And, and so with regard to that, that's probably a good segue into something that you would have a particular perspective on. And that is how do you look after people during, but more importantly, yeah, during crisis and in the case of Slave Lake, you're dealing with individuals that lost their homes. You're dealing with friends, you're dealing with all of these things. And so what kind of things did your team and your crews come up with in terms of stress and, and those sorts of things. And then that will lead us into a conversation of how you can, how you supported them through that. So what are some things that, that your crews experienced emotionally and, and mentally both during the crisis and, and right after it? I think you always have to remember that the people are the most important thing. Without the people, it doesn't move. Nothing moves, nothing happens. So for us, the firefighters that lost their houses, once they knew their families were safe, there's nothing else they can do. You're not going to rebuild your house overnight. You're not going to figure out your insurance overnight. You're not. And so they really just wanted to stay part of the team. They wanted to stay in the fight and, and try and that's great. You know, and we let that happen. And I think that we protected them as best we can, not sending them into those neighborhoods and, and really starting and finishing every day with debriefs, having counselors available breaking down all those stereotypes and just saying, Hey, if you got to talk, you got to, how many people out there right now in their benefit packages have these emergency people that they can call these counselors and, and how many people are using that? We're a little tough it out society and we don't really need to be. I tell people all the time, if you need to talk, but I'm not a counselor. So if you need more than I can help you with, Call the professionals now. Are they getting overwhelmed? I, I don't know. But uh, the people are the most important thing. And even once we've had to lay them off, you have to stay in touch. You, you have to keep talking to them. You have to, how are you doing? And it's, it's the simple things. Like you could say, well, how's the money situation? Well, you're laid off. We know how the money situation. So they've put a bunch of things in there to try and help people with that as the leader what do you do give them those pointers pay attention to that stuff follow along did you defer your house payment did you defer your truck payment did you apply for ei is there something i can do to help you with that process here's the phone number to call and it's not we just don't cut it and quit and that's the end of it as the leader you have that responsibility to continue to lead even through those tough times and that's hard because you're trying to lead your family. You're trying to lead other people. You're trying to help make sure their families are okay. You might have the bosses calling you to say, hey, we got this other stuff going on with the company. You're still trying to do stuff with less or figure out how you're going to restart again, if you're going to be able to restart again. And I get all of those stresses. But at the end of the day, when you're a company or when you're a leader, your people have to be the top priority. 